we don't have something that recenters us on what it is we want to do for our future, what's important to us, then almost guaranteed, if we don't have that in place, like a flag we're going to focus off of, then we'll end up somewhere else. Because it's not just we have to set the flag for where we want to go, but then we have to say something every day or do something every day that reminds us that's the direction we want to go. Podcast Junkies, episode 184. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. If you're new to the podcast, this is the show where we have conversations with interesting and fascinating podcasters from around the podosphere who are doing amazing things with their longtime running shows, or in some cases, new shows that really piqued my interest. And as a result, I've had them on the show because it was something that interested me or a topic that I noticed from a conversation on Twitter which I've done in the past before. In case you missed last week's episode, we had a great conversation with Emily Prokop, host of The Story Behind. And this week, we have the pleasure of speaking with Paul Adams. He's the host of Sound Financial Bites. Paul was an early client of mine with my company, Fullcast, and he's a, a great friend. And I'm really happy that we got the opportunity to tell his story on the show. We talk about why he actually decided to start his podcast, and he recalls the origins of his obsession with technology. He also loves flying and he talks about his newfound appreciation that he felt after experiencing his first flying lessons. We dig into how he entered the financial services industry and a little bit about how he started his business. He talks about raising his children to stand firm in what they believe and the importance of facing adversity and challenges. And he also mentions a lesson that he learned from a former Navy SEAL. He has this idea of living radically within your means and we dig into what that means and how it's manifested itself in Paul's life. We discuss the importance of surrounding yourself with like-minded individuals, family, and friends, and the 83 nights he has spent in RV. Finally, we talk about the importance of creating an intention statement in your personal and business lives, and that was an early podcast episode of Sound Financial Bites that I actually took to heart and made it as part of my intentions. And we talk a little bit about how he's grown as a podcast host. This is really an in-depth conversation, and I really appreciate the opportunity to tell Paul's story and the story of Sound Financial Bites. As always, full show notes are available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 184. This episode is brought to you by Clarion. Clarion is a conference that will be held on March 6th in Orlando, Florida. And it was born out of this idea of allowing people to find their voice, undiscovered voices. And I realized when I was at conferences, there was a scarcity, in my opinion, of what I called undiscovered voices. So I really felt that there was a need to see more female voices, more LGBTQ voices, more minority voices, more voices of folks with disabilities. And this is my first attempt at bringing those voices together. We've already got a great mix of speakers lined up and we're in the process of having conversations with additional folks. Special thanks goes out to Chris Kermitos and John Dennis of PodFest who have graciously allowed me to partner with them to have this event in conjunction with PodFest. So the one ticket price will actually get you not only into the Clarion Conference, which, which is the full day conference, but also the three days of PodFest, which continues. So head on over to clarionconference.com, use promo code Harry sent me, and you'll get $50 off your ticket. I'm excited about the opportunity to have my speakers and guests tell their story, 
And I think if you know someone who would like to find their voice, if you know someone who would like to be inspired by speakers who have found their voice, then I'd encourage you to check out the conference. It'll be something different. I really want it to be a magical experience for everyone attending. And I want people to leave inspired and motivated to find their voice. Make sure you stay till the end of the episode where I reveal this week's retention hashtag. But for now, enjoy my conversation with Paul. All right, Paul Adams, host of Sound Financial Bites. Thank you for joining us on Podcast Junkies. Man, I'm so glad to be here. And, uh, you know, it's just super happy to have a chance to share with people what's been going on in the, for us getting into podcasting. It was so interesting because uh, this journey for me has been fascinating because in, in the beginning, I had this preconceived notion about what I wanted my show to be. And I said, I want people who only have like 50 interviews and have been doing it for a while and are podcast veterans because I want to tell their stories. And then I realized it's my show, my rules. I could have whoever I want on. <laughs> and so yeah. I've been talking about this recently, and I think it's really important for podcasters to you know be themselves on the show. And and so you know we've been working together to produce your show from the beginning. But I'm I'm wondering why you felt it was time to you know ab- absent of you know whatever we were doing together, but just you personally, like why you felt it was time for you to to have this platform. You know, uh, so it was near the end of 2015, and it was before we found you and Fullcast. We, uh, I remember very clearly, I was working with a PR firm, and uh, and I had some recent opportunities to get uh, interviewed by Forbes and Inc. and Entrepreneur about how business owners should think about their businesses. I have a financial services firm, and what was basically off the table because of the regulation of my industry was being able to do things on a regular basis, like a podcast. In fact, many of the biggest people you see in radio, uh, the Susie Armands, the Dave Ramseys of the world, are they're unlicensed. So they get on the radio, they say whatever they want, and there's little to no accountability because they don't have any of the licensure that would cause them to be regulated the way we are. Well, in my case, for years, things like podcasting were kind of off the table because how in the world do you end up working with it or regulating it? And then what somebody opened up to me is they said, hey, I'm going to share with you. I wish I could remember his name off the top of my head. I've met him once. Uh, the gentleman who has uh, Entrepreneur on Fire. John Lee Dumas. John Lee Dumas. Yes. Yeah. So he shared with me, he said, hey, go to this website, look at this, et cetera. And I really reflected on it. And what I had figured out was for our clients, what was difficult was having all these financial entertainers surrounding them with uh, either inappropriate information or misinformation. We work with folks that make between 300,000 and a million five a year and annual income as a household typically. And most of the media that you get exposed to in the marketplace is all to satisfy the average, the 90%. Not like that's bad, but it's not the same as what our clients needed in terms of advice. And I couldn't find a great source. So I said, well, we'll start bringing stuff that's not meant to be controversial. We're not going to be talking about things that are meant to keep people to the next commercial break, but just give people something that they could do that would increase their knowledge and allow them to make better decisions. And I'm somebody who I could get writer's block when I'm trying to write one of my books or trying to write an article But as my mom would say, I've never had trouble coming up with something to say. And podcasts really became that outlet for us. I get the sense you're a bit of a a gearhead as well, because you're right now, for the benefit of the listener, you've got a beautiful SM7B in front of you. And uh, I know you like playing with toys. And and so I'm wondering, is that something that you thought about? This is going to be a fun opportunity for me to test out gear. 
Oh man. Well, as you know, I love technology. We, my wife and I have this philosophy of living radically within our means. So we don't spend our money on big houses or super expensive cars, but man, do I love me some technology. And uh, in fact, I remember early on when I was recording before having tools like Squadcast, I was recording with uh, Adobe's, oh, what, it, what is that studio called? The one that has all the cool graphs on it. When I bring it up on my screen, it's part of the Adobe suite audition. Audition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And oh, it looks so cool. And I had it on a big screen. So when I have a guest come in my office, I had a screen like the one behind me here. And I would just like, and it, people thought it was so great. Uh, but uh, what I started to find out was the coolest technology may not be that necessary to be able to pull off a high quality podcast. And I, and I have some cool stuff here now, but I've also had the opportunity to record a podcast uh, while on vacation, sitting in a car, uh, just so I could insulate myself from noise with, you know, a little tiny lavalier that's plugged into my iPhone. And what seems to be production quality is super important because without that, you, you like that's the ante you got to get in. But what's also seems to be important from my, you know, we've been at it now, I think uh, 106 episodes uh, just this week. And yet, What's for us so unique is realizing that we just need to bring the really good content, be well thought through and be intimate with the people that we're talking to. How far back can you recall having this interest in, in tech? Uh, so for me, uh, probably, well, that's a good question. I think I remember when I first got in this industry back in 1998, uh, everybody shared a computer in the office. Like no, very few people had their own computers then at their desk. Uh, and you would all just kind of take turns. There were like three community computers we could use to like run financial projections for clients. Uh, but when I was a kid, I would work in DOS and I learned to use basic. And my mom worked with the department of energy. Uh, she's been retired now for quite some time. Uh, for all I know, I, I don't know with all the security, everything else, but she had a leading edge word processor at home. And it ran in DOS and I was allowed to use it. And one day I deleted her entire hard drive from DOS. I guess it, if you hit delete dot, it deletes the directory, which is what I was after. When you hit delete dot dot, yeah, it deletes the whole hard drive. Anyway, uh, there was a gentleman I'll never remember. I'll never forget his name, D. Jensen. And he came over and he spent like a day and a half at our home, like the the biggest, baddest Department of Energy IT guy had to come to our house for a day and a half to get that whole hard drive recovered. So probably back then when that first leading edge word processor rolled in, and I, and I have a unique ability, which is I buy computer stuff right before it goes out of style. And that is, uh, that's my claim to fame. I remember convincing my parents we needed to get uh, one of the earlier kind of color monitor computers. I think I got my parents spend $3,000 on it. This is back in the 80s. And uh, oh my word. And then like the next, no kidding, the next week they released the Pentium chip. Like just the $3,000 computer I convinced my parents to buy was now like a heavy paperweight. And I couldn't play a single game that came on the market after that because they were all designed to run on Pentium after that. What were the, some, some of the earlier games you remember playing? Uh, you know, one of them, I wish I could remember the name of it. Uh, it was a flight simulator uh, and you were flying F-16 and it was like eight of those big floppy disks. Uh, no, they were the smaller floppy disks. 
but it's like eight of them just install it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and then it, something could go wrong. So you like sure as heck kept all of them. I think it was called Falcon something, but it was like a pretty darn good flight simulator. And that's one that really stuck with me. And I remember, you know, kind of having a little bit of a passion for flying after that. But uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a good one. And the last, the last game I could buy for it. <laughs> and uh, have you been in a plane since then? Yeah, I took, uh, I became a, I technically never got my pilot's license, but I had about a hundred hours in uh, some different versions of Cessna's aircraft uh, and was about to get my pilot's license, take my written exam finally. Uh, and my son was born eight weeks premature. When that happened, I couldn't then, uh, you know, kind of shift and finish out the written. I was home. He was in the NICU for almost a month. So, uh, so that really kept my attention. I never got back in the cockpit. I think now, though, in retrospect, I don't have any particular interest in being the one that's responsible for the flight plans, for the weather, for any of that. So now when we've done it, when we've flown since, it's always just been me hiring a pilot and renting an aircraft. Uh, and then we just go somewhere. But I think having gone through that, did, did you do you have now a newfound appreciation for what it takes to, to fly one of these things? I think when you think about all the things that could possibly go wrong with and the responsibility you have for these people and these pilots in the air. I mean, I, I try not to think of it too much when I'm flying because <laughs> it would probably freak me out. But if you, you, you just take a peek in that cockpit every now and then and you've been in one. So it's just like it's, it's a lot going on there. Well, I'll give you the two easy things that change for me when you talk about the gravity of it was when you file a flight plan. I remember the first time I did it with my instructor and uh, there's this section of the flight plan form that says SOB. And I was like, what do I put in that box? He says that stands for souls on board. Wow. And you file the flight plan, how many souls are on board. And it's like, they are in your hands. So that, that, that gave some gravity. And then I also remember while working on my pilot's license, being in an airport and a bunch of people got fairly upset. You know, they were, they were angry because of a delay or something. And I looked at the guy next to me. I kind of intentionally said it loud enough for everybody here. I said, you realize the pilot actually knows how dangerous flying is. And they're the ones that said we shouldn't fly and they don't want to die any more than we do. They're the first ones to the crash site. And you could just, once people get centered in how high consequence certain things are, things get so easy to access. We can forget how high consequence they are. And once everybody just kind of overheard that, you could just feel it all change all the mood change right there in the waiting area by the ticket counter yeah it sort of puts things into perspective <laughs> shift gears for a little bit financial services i know a lot of people have their favorite subjects when when they when it comes to high school and once it comes to college and for a lot of people it is definitely not math uh mm-hmm. so i'm wondering uh how you got into it and and where that passion started for you so I have a very silly story as to why, and I say silly because I think a lot of little boys thought they wanted to do this one day. And so, and I have no idea if I could have done it. Uh, and I have the greatest respect for people who have, uh, when I was like 11 years old, I got a chance. My cousin had a VHS tape of that Charlie Sheen movie, Navy SEALs. And I watched that movie and I was like, that is what I want to do. Lots of people in my family had been in the military. And what I decided at 11 years old was I was going to be a Navy SEAL and I was going to go, uh, I was going to learn enough about finance so that I would know how to handle my money. Because if I live on base, eat at the commissary, I even at low levels 
of entry-level military pay, I would be able to save a truckload of money. And I already designed a plan how I could retire with a pension in 20 years. It took me about four years to design the plan because I was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. Four years to design a plan. And uh, the, the plan was be in the SEAL teams for 20 years, retire with a pension and with a million dollars. And uh, that was my path. So I had just trained physically as a young man and uh, you know, put myself through difficulties, backpacking. I remember uh, swimming out at Lake Mead when we lived out in Las Vegas as a kid. And I would just see a boat kind of out in the harbor and I'd go swim to the boat and hopefully they'd let me get on board and rest. And if they didn't, I would just swim back. That's, uh, that was my life, what I thought my life was going to be. And sometime when I saw that and I looked at the, I, back then you couldn't Google it the same way. So I had to buy a book about Navy SEALs. And it was like, what's the requirements? And one of them was no asthma attacks after age 13. So uh, I had asthma. But what I did is I literally hid asthma attacks, even from my parents, so that I could be a Navy SEAL. But when I went to go enlist and took the ASVAB and all of that, I was filling out the paperwork and found out that it was no asthma ever. They changed it. It was about when I was 16. And it was a long, hard thing to think through for me. And I called back the recruiter the next day. And I said, I lied on that form. I can't, I can't lie like that. I actually had asthma as a kid. If that takes me out, that's, that takes me out. And so um, I had... Uh, so I wasn't going to do that. But now what's the only other thing I had thought about or trained for or read about up until that point uh, was, you know, of course, now I'm a little ahead of things because I'm 18 years old and I'm already thinking this is what my life's going to be. But it was I'd studied money and I got an internship with a financial services firm while going to school. And that's what made my cutover. I'd always been good at math. I loved physics because it applied math. And then money was a natural outcropping of it because it was, again, applied math, not just, you know, esoteric math that gave me the ability to actually make a difference for other people. It's probably uh, the most unique entryway into finances. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And and even that wasn't graceful. Like I remember interviewing for this internship and having no idea about finance or what I would do, etc. And I was talking to the recruiter at this financial firm. And one of the things they shared with me is there was some kid, 21 years old, out in Los Angeles making a quarter million dollars a year. And my whole assessment about this, give you an idea of the kind of ego I had at the time. I don't know any 21-year-old smarter than me. I could do that. That was it. That was my whole reasoning for why I would get into this industry. And uh, I didn't do it that year. It took me a few years till I cleared that much income, but it was, it was really... Uh, a very arrogant entree into a very difficult industry, uh, and but it's been it's been really good. So I hear a couple of vignettes there. This idea of, of swimming out to the boat without knowing if you're going to get on it. This idea of of, of seeing a challenge uh, with something as hard as entry into the Navy SEALs. I, I hear it when you talk about this. You know, seeing what this other 21 year old is doing and seeing and, and knowing that in your heart that's something you can accomplish. So there's this go getter attitude, this drive that you have, and I'm wondering if you've you've thought or given some thoughts about like where that comes from. Like, was that always inherent or as far back as you can remember, or is that something that was instilled in you? Uh, so I think it was instilled in me. My my mom and dad spent a lot of time with me as a kid, teaching me right from wrong. Now, here's something I did. I didn't know about this till I was an adult. My mom shared it with me later. 
that when I was about four years old, my parents had a conversation. And what they said was that we're never going to be able to tell him what to do and we won't be able to control him. Paul is either going to be really, really good or he is going to be just the absolute worst, like run a prison gang bad. And uh, so what they did is they spent a lot of time, effort, and energy teaching me right from wrong and putting me in a position where like while we were in church every Sunday, that was a big part of it because like we're just going to pack his bags really well with a solid moral value set so that he can cope with this drive he has and head the right direction. And, you know, it was tough because certain things came up for me in school where there would be somebody bullying the kid that couldn't defend himself and I would jump right in and I'd get in fights and my parents would have to come down. Mostly my dad, my dad stayed at home when I was a kid. So I had this enormous uh, drive from the masculine side of my family with my dad staying home way before that was cool. And I learned things like, Paul, if you do the right thing, if you're defending somebody else or somebody else throws the first punch, I will back you up every single time. But if you start the trouble, I will punish you to no end. And it was that super consistency of the way they would discipline me and the way their expectations were for me to act that for lack of a, you've heard of people being passive aggressive. I am uh, uh, aggressive aggressive, meaning I don't I don't tend to sit back or not tilt into a fight. I've actually had to uh, temper my ability, not like aggressive, like I want to be in a fist fight. But when I see an injustice, it's very difficult for me not to take action. I, I was at dinner with some business owner friends the other night at uh, at a little resort where we had outside of Seattle here where we had done our retreat and they were just, I had kind of forgotten about it, but there was some woman on the other side of the restaurant yelling, help, help. And there, everybody said like, we, we had only just registered where the person was that was yelling for help. And Paul was already at the woman's side. And they're like, how did you know you need to give that guy a hind? Like I said, actually, I ran over there not knowing if somebody was getting stabbed, shot, if there was a beating, like I didn't, no, I just started to close distance on the threat. And and then when I got there, it turned out the guy I thought was choking, but as it turns out, uh, he was probably having a heart attack and my attempts at the Heimlich may have jump-started him. That's for the paramedics later. But of course, I thought I broke the guy's ribs and I was like, I'm just going to go sit back at my seat and hope nobody knows who did that. I don't want to get sued. Well, that's interesting because you had that discipline instilled in you. Do you remember like an incident when you were young where that um that those teachings from your parents were put to the test because maybe it was an incident where they weren't there so it was the first time where you're like okay am i going to do the right thing in this moment yep you know i don't i don't remember a specific instance i what i what i remember most is the times where like there was a kid who you know i don't know the politically correct terms anymore so i'm not going to try to say it but he was uh, uh in the classes that he needed to be in, given the fact that he had a much lower IQ than the rest of it. Physically, he was fine. Special, but, special but, education, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so special special education kid, and he was uh, getting picked on and pushed. And I just remember mm. having no doubt about this much bigger kid who was you know, an upperclassman from me in high school. And I just just totally inter, you know, got in between the two of them, and mm. I made me his problem. 
<laughs> and not, uh, and it wasn't, I never felt like I got tested with it and had a question. And maybe because of this bit of tilt I had that I just would tilt into the conflict. Hmm. And, uh, and that's something that now as an, uh, as an adult, especially the last decade in growing a company and being a leader is knowing which conflicts are worth tilting into and which mm. ones are the ones you just kind of have to leave there and yeah. let them percolate and let people figure out their own path. And I imagine that's now made its way into what you teach your kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, in fact, we have a, I have a daughter named Reagan, but we have nicknamed her PJ for Paul Jr. Cause she has about every characteristic I had as a kid. <laughs> okay. And, and I mean, like she will convince people of things. She will, uh, like she would be great at sales. Uh, she will look for why does something make sense and create a story about why the world is the way it is on some particular area. And the things that I have to instill into them are like you, you can, I, which this is totally politically incorrect, but I'm okay with my kids getting in fights. As long as it's not because somebody called them names, it's not because anybody did those things, but because somebody, they're being hurt by somebody or someone else is getting hurt and they can help. That is, and I think that personally, I think that's something that's very lost in today's young people is they're not learning when is the right time to fight. And there is a time to fight in life. Uh, whether it's to disagree with something, some injustice, uh, or just to say, no, I won't compromise here. You can, you know, you can go ahead and fire me or I will lose that client because I'm not going to step over that line. This is where my line is. And I think if kids don't learn that well enough, then they're going to be pushed around pretty good by people in power for the rest of their lives. This topic of bullying is really interesting for me because, you know, I, I saw a little bit when I was growing up as well. And I think I, I almost, and I've now heard stories like yours from friends who would, would jump in and help, help when it wasn't like the cool thing to do. Like bullying was the cool thing to do right now. And I oh, feel I, like and I was totally pushed out of every cool kid. Like there was, those kids would not give me anybody who was cool. The, the pretty girls or the super athletic guys would have nothing to do with me. But I think I almost, it's almost like uh, I, the, the more we talk about it, the better, like def, like defending and, 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 and anti-bully is like the new cool. Like it's not cool to bully anymore. Like it's, it should just be like a stigma, like, and, and, like shame on you, like, and, and, and teaching kids that early on to like, look at them and saying like, no, don't join the bullies, join the people, join the, the people who need the help. Because I think that's the only way, like this wave. And a lot of it is, is driven by peer pressure when we're younger. Right. And so if the peer pressure is now swung in the other direction where it's now, the pressure is to, you know, to not be the bully because that's not cool. I think the more, the more conversations we can have on that, the better. Well, and I, I worry a little bit about the way it's, uh, they have clumped together anti-bullying and anti-violence. Uh, there's a totally appropriate time for violence. Um, you know, if, uh, you know, if there's a kid getting beaten down and there's, there's another kid that can interface and at least kind of shock that situation into, Stopping. That's not, that may not be the time to go run and get a teacher. That might be the time that somebody needs to step in. And I'm super thankful for all the bullying I got. There's very, the bullying I got as a kid was so tremendous that uh, I am a better person for it because there's not much people could do to me that would be worse than the bullying I experienced that I think 
was in part because I was different than a lot of other kids, but then also because I I would stand up in a situation where the the really vulnerable would get pushed around, and that ju- would just stick with me. And I uh, I was just listening to a guy on YouTube the other day who's super successful, hundreds of millions of net worth, thankful for the bullying they've gotten. Because I think that many of us had some benefits of difficulties, whatever they were. And we may kind of wish it didn't happen and maybe even want to protect our children from it. But the problem is we're also protecting them from the benefits and the strength that comes from that degree of adversity. One thing I've, I've had happen, sometimes I'll describe something uh, physically and I'm amazed, and I'm not saying there should be a lot of fistfights, but it is amazing to me how few uh, men have uh, today, my age, I'm, uh, I'll be 40 in November, how few of them have actually been in a fistfight. Whereas if you ask my dad's generation, he was 88 and passed uh, almost a year ago. Uh, and that was, no, yeah, everybody had at least been in a fistfight and you, you knew what that was like and you, you knew what it was like to... Uh, to have your life threatened, and and that, and it's different. Like even if you've done some MMA or you've done taekwondo, judo, whatever those are, all those situations are what I might call like controlled violence. But I remember a police officer telling a story of, and he's a guy who had MMA wise rolled with some really tough people, and he remembered this big Russian guy who was just huge. 50 pounds on him and sweaty and just crushing him. He's trying to avoid passing out while he's trying to get out of a chokehold. And he's like, man, I can take anything after rolling with that Russian guy for 40 minutes. There is no, nothing that can mess with me. And then he told the story about coming into a domestic violence situation. And this guy attacked him with a ironing board. And then subsequently hand to hand with this guy in an apartment. He's like, this this is not going to stop until this guy kills me or I subdue him. Like no, no, no tapping out. Nobody's going to stop it. This is going to go. And, and I think, I don't think everybody should put themselves in that situation, but I do think that we don't often think about how bad it can get, which has us feel awful about some, like when you compare it to your life being threatened some way, that doesn't compare much to losing that client or having, if you're working somewhere and your boss chews you out or it like all of those things consequence wise, aren't that big. And I was working for a CEO, amazing guy named Kelly Kidwell. I'm actually super excited. I get to talk to him later today. We haven't talked in s- some time. And he said to me once to, th- and I remember this probably one of the biggest pieces of me maturing from maybe being too, uh, So passive aggressive being active aggressive. Uh, And he said, you know, Paul, I'd have you think about it. He says, I know you were right in that meeting. We had just been at a board meeting together. He says, you were right. He said, but what you may want to think about is don't get that bothered unless it threatens uh, your life or your family's safety. And just let that be the line that like there's no reason to get that upset in business unless it somehow threatens your family's safety. There's no reason to get that upset in a board meeting just because somebody is inappropriate unless it threatens Like almost everything else you can just let go. And it gave me a different gauge away from the justice or it's just moral and it's the right thing to do to say, wow, what I really need to do is like, does this really threaten 
me and my family and our future, then I need to be all in. One last kind of curious thing while we're on the topic of aggression that was another game changer for me was a, a friend of mine, and he is a former Navy SEAL. And we were talking about, you know, uh, fighting, stuff like that. And one thing he brought up, he said, Paul, you know what I would do if there was like a crazy person in the parking lot or somebody mouthed off to me, say at the mall, and uh, that guy is kind of walking around the parking lot, maybe looking for me leaving. I said, what would you do? He says, uh, I would go get a police officer at the mall and have mocked me to my car. And I said, why is that? He said, it's simple because what we've been trained in as Navy SEALs is you don't fight unless you're okay with someone dying. And it's either going to be me or it's going to be him. It doesn't mean somebody has to die, but you have to have said to yourself, this is a big enough situation. It's okay taking that risk. And I wasn't okay taking, I'm not going to take that risk over something as silly as some guy disagreeing with me at a mall. And I thought, no, those are wise words to just uh, as a temperance for what uh, uh, that, figuring out whether or not you actually engage a, a threatening situation or, but there's threatening situations, threaten our business, threaten our clients, threaten our relationships. And instead just realizing, wait, is this one high enough level to actually get that upset about, or do I just need to navigate it? Yeah. A couple of things come to mind. My boss, old boss used to say, Hey, look, at the end of the day, we're not saving lives. <laughs> yeah. And some of the former military guys I know they're, they're all, they all say things like, uh, you know, I, I don't get too stressed out because nothing I do today is going to kill anybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to look at it. Um, and it's, it is that Marshall, I think Bruce Lee used to talk about this. It's like you would train so that you never have to use what you were trained on. Yes. Yep. And I, and I think it's a, there's a lot to that. And there's been times that I think I've been very, very lucky that I when I was young and aggressive, I never ended up picking that fight that would have, uh, you know, significantly injured or hurt me or something else. And, and today it's a very different set of situations uh, in terms of how aggressive people are or weapons, et cetera. It's, uh, it's tough. So shifting uh, gears now, what, you mentioned something that I thought was interesting. Uh, and I think the listeners will get a lot out of is this idea of living radically within your means. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think it's something that you've been choosing in terms of how you live your life for a long time now. And, and I'm wondering if you talk a couple of things. Uh, number one, when when this is, was something that became important for you? And two, maybe um, a couple of uh, tips for, for how you do that in the day-to-day. -day. Well, yeah. And so first, probably to talk about what it means to live radically within your means. Um, I think what people think is living within your means normally would be, I don't spend more than I make this month. And then like the higher level of responsibility around that would say, oh, I'm saving 10%. To us, living radically within our means is creating a life where our goal for 2019 is to live off of 20% of what we make and save or give away 80. Now, for those of you who are thinking, wow, I might want a financial advisor, but not that guy, uh, <laughs> that is not uh, what we prescribed to our clients by any means. My wife and I have chosen to do this because it's when you go out of your way to manage little things like uh, how often you go to Starbucks to whether or not you buy new cars to owning a modest home, all of that stuff combined creates a situation for us where it's very difficult for anybody to push us around. 
Because most of the things that really get people stressed out or pushed around in life have to do with money. Look at how many divorces are around money. So for my wife and I, by just being a little more disciplined every month in certain habits and practices around our spending, it's pretty darn hard to not be in a position that we have a lot of autonomy and freedom. For instance, we will take our RV down to uh, Newport Beach, California again uh, for about a month this year. We spent uh, 83 nights in the RV total last year. But part of the reason why that's available to us is I'm not worried whether or not we get a particular client if they say, well, I need to meet you in person. And we do all of our meetings by Zoom so that we have the freedom for them to be wherever they want to be as their career or business takes them around the world. And the same for us, that we can be wherever we want to be and still care for that. So the reason for doing it was this autonomy and freedom. What inspired me originally was a book by, uh, unfortunately now past, Dr. Thomas Stanley, who wrote The Millionaire Next Door, and then later in the late 2000s had written uh, Stop Acting Rich and How to Live Like a, and Start Living Like a Real Millionaire. And that book gave me the statistical awareness of how often somebody has a screaming home or has some really awesome cars And yet, they don't have the balance sheet that could possibly support the level of consumption they're currently at. Now, another book helped my wife a lot was one that's uh, called Simplify by Joshua Becker. And I think that one works really well on the analytical side and the other book works really well on the heart side. And that's the one that did it for my wife. And so we just in the last uh, two years, we sold our, what I would refer to as the McMansion, you know, the... uh, nearly 4,000 square foot home. And we moved two miles away so that we could be on a cul-de-sac with some very good friends of ours. And we went to a 1,500 square foot home. And we, we love it in nearly every single way versus our prior home. Do you th- what do you think the biggest challenges for folks when they look to make a jump like that? I, I guess it's mindset, keeping up with the Joneses, obviously, all that sort of stuff. What, what, what do you think is the biggest mental block when you're having these discussions that people need to work through? You know, for, for, and it's still a challenge that we have to be aware of. And that is that the people that are marketing decisions to us, whether it's to buy the bigger home, the cooler car, whatever it is, think about it, like just all the attention, a company that makes expensive cars like Tesla, all the attention they get. And there's this huge temptation to just get dissatisfied with what you have. And there's some easy transaction and probably quote unquote affordable payments that you can make to make that thing a part of your life. And so what we've done is two things. One is getting really clear about our aims for the future. What is it that's important to us about what the future brings so that we can take action that will fulfill on that future? That's part one. And then second is cultivating contentment. And those two really go hand in hand. For instance, if if I go through my day to day and I don't have an idea of what I wanted to get accomplished today, then my mood about whether or not today was a good day will just be based upon how I feel at the time somebody asks me. Instead, if I said, no, a good day for me today is getting this podcast done with Harry, I need to run to the store to get this, and then me and my family will get to the campground, we're taking a long weekend after this, uh, and we'll get there by three, that would be a good day. And then we accomplish that, and I get to enjoy having accomplished it. So it but that does but otherwise if i'm driving down the highway actually today's a good example driving down the highway and somebody passes me in a bigger nicer rv 
then it's easy for me to get dissatisfied. No, I'm not dissatisfied at all with my RV. I'm only dissatisfied because somebody else has that. Now think about the same thing for your year, for your marriage, for your faith, for your money, is that you are in this consistent comparison to what else is out there. And that's the comparison trap. You know, and we tell our kids if they say, well, so and so has X, we've taught them to say, what is comparison? It is the thief of all joy. So if what we can do instead is simply say to ourselves, what do we want this to look like? And then we accomplish that. It gives us the chance to be satisfied with having accomplished with what we wanted to do, not with what, what everybody else would say is really cool. And getting through that, I think that when I knew I'd made the shift was I was at a restaurant that I would often meet people at uh, in, uh, near my home. And uh, I saw somebody pull up with like, I don't remember which one it is, but it's the Mercedes real hot rod has the doors that go up. So it looks like it's celebrating a field goal. <laughs> the goal wing doors. Yeah. The goal wing doors. Yeah. And, and inside the seats looked like the inside of like a catcher's mitt. It was just beautiful. And I remember looking at it and really admiring it. The guy was talking about it. We paid uh, you know, 140 some thousand dollars for it. Really, really enjoying looking at his car. And for the first time, never feeling like I should one day do that. And I think the shoulds, that it is an enormous theft of people's wealth over time is they, or they allow advertisers or their friends to should all over them. They should do this, should do that. We'll get that should out of here as far as I'm concerned. If instead, if you ever catch yourself saying, I can afford that or I can't afford that, you're already down the wrong path. What you want to do is build your own strategy. And if somebody tempts you into something that's not part of your strategy, simply say, man, I would love to do that, but that would break strategy for me and my family. And that causes them to have to ask you, what's your strategy? And now I get to welcome you to my court of play where I've drawn the lines on the ground. I say what the rules are. I don't have to describe by what everybody else and the advertisers say I should be satisfied with. That's really great stuff. And I think... Um it just bears repeating and I pe- think people need to hear this message over and over again because I'm sure you've probably said this to friends and family members and you've mentioned to them once and they even see how you're living your life and I think and then you see them make a decision that probably wasn't the best decision for them like three months later and I'm like and and I think it's they need to hear this you know like they say in sales you need to hear like an ad about a product seven or eight times before you decide you want to buy it and I think with this type of messaging I think the more we hear it I get the sense that you're a student of this philosophy and you've probably read a lot and heard a lot about people who are, are, are living this type of life that you've, you've learned from. So I, I think it's just one of those things that we, we just need to keep saying over and over again until it sinks in. And, and more importantly, for anything you want to accomplish in life, one of the most important things you can do is get a group of people around you who will get on the same page with you, friends, family members, because they, they can help insulate you from the, uh, there's a term in contagious disease called herd immunity. Like if enough people get the flu shot, then everybody doesn't have to have the flu shot to prevent a pandemic, but a percentage of people do in a society. If I get enough people in my life surrounding me that have a similar philosophy, like nobody's impressed if somebody gets a new car and uh, nobody's impressed if you get a better home or you went to some super fancy vacation, we might celebrate with you, might enjoy it with you, but it's not like we're going to high five you in that. We're going to high five you about whether or not you were home on time or did you get your 
you you create those value sets of the people that you care about, and now suddenly you you insulate yourself from a lot of the garbage that's out there in the marketplace. And and I'm, for some reason, Jim Rohn just constantly is, is ringing in my head. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, and and with all aspects, money and and life and happiness and stuff like that. And so that sounds like you know what you're ascribing to as well. Show me your friends, and I will show you your future. Something that you mentioned that was interesting is this idea of how you're you know not only living within your means personally, but you've decided what, how you want your business to look, and and the fact that you don't have an office. And you have meetings by Zoom. Um, you probably, I wonder if you met with some resistance early on when you d- decided to do that and, and, you know, what those conversations would like and, and how you switch people's mindset around as to that being the best thing for you. Uh, well, two things. One, just small correction. We do still have an office. Uh, my goal is that we don't have an office uh, in the next year at all. Uh, but for now, we still have an office. We have staff that comes in and mail that comes and goes from there. But we're trying to solve a few technology things in our industry that's very old school. How do we fix those? So my chief of staff is working on on fixing some of those. Uh, but you're right. Like we don't have to come to the office. We don't allow our clients to come into the office and meet with us. And what I found, whether it's with this, uh, you know, this particular thing of us not wanting to meet people in person or whatever it is that has to do with your aims and your future for your life, is one gets settled on the aims first because as soon as you settled on the aims, it it's you're just going to go in the moment with whatever the opportunity is. Like I had a very large uh, business owner client and their uh, husband who works for a very well known venture capital firm out here, and they really wanted to work with us, but they said we'd really like to meet with you in person. If you don't have your aims set, that will tempt you, and you will take that action. So what we did is I set our aims that we wanted this kind of autonomy and freedom. And then I created a way of thinking about it as to why it actually takes care of our clients to do it that way. It's not a, I, and a few times I've shared, and it lands very differently for clients. If I make it about my lifestyle reasons for why we do online meetings, it really lands flat in the conversation. But if I stay focused on what it means for them, like, well, I want you to think about, let's say you work with the local, Edward Jones or Morgan Stanley, whatever, somebody who's probably doesn't do things quite as comprehensive as we do, but at least it's a big name, feels safe, et cetera. And now you're, you get a huge promotion and you're getting paid more money than you've ever been made before. And you get moved halfway across the country. So now with more financial consequences than you've ever had before, you're going to interview the new financial team you're going to find. Or how about you retire and now you're 60s or 70s, more money than you've ever had before. And you want to land in Palm Springs, but your advisor is on the other side of the country. And now at that time, when you're new to some new city, that's when you're going to find the advisor. And we put it in those terms for our clients and they go, oh, I'll say, and you and your spouse, don't you want to be on the same page with money? Yeah. What are the odds you're going to be able to drive to somebody's office six or seven times over eight weeks? Well, that, that would be really hard. Like, right. You guys can barely do a date night. So if you can both jump on your computer, would that facilitate you getting on the same page about money? Would it be helpful? Oh, yeah. So we keep it in terms of what they care about. And if you think about it, nearly anything you want to do in your business, I believe if you started the sentence with, to take the best care of you, and then fill it in after that, you will find how it lands to take care of the concerns of the people on the other side of that transaction. 
so that they don't even have to realize what you're doing is taking the best care of you and your family as well. That's great stuff. I like that. that, that I, do, I can just see how that would land uh, with people because it, and if you're doing it on Zoom, you get to see their facial expression as, they, <laughs> as it sinks in, which is great. Well, you can get away with saying almost anything to somebody if it takes better care of them than what they were thinking about before. So talk to me about uh, what it's like spending 83 nights in an RV. Oh, it's great. Uh, it is funny. You talk about resetting the amount of space you have. I think the RV with all the pop-outs out might maybe is 350 square feet. Uh, I don't think it's 350, uh, but maybe, maybe it's 350. And uh, we have three little kids. Uh, by the end of the year, they'll be six, seven, and eight. This is kind of the stage of year where they're all changing age. And uh, they, you know, they love it. Uh, we have a rule of no devices for the kids in the RV. Uh, we only really watch TV if there's, uh, they, when, if we're out on a Sunday, we will log in and watch, uh, watch church online and then they get to go inside and watch uh, a show and during that. And then we, uh, if the weather's super bad, then they get to watch a movie, but that's it. The rest of the time we're outdoors. We're enjoying time with each other in the family. They are literally out playing with sticks and stones and loving it and riding their bikes and learning a ton about themselves. We noticed that as we camp, especially with young children, and as many times as we do it, the neuroplasticity of kids becomes really evident that what we noticed is every kid in our family learned a bike ride during a camping trip. New environment, new neuroplasticity, and off they go. And their friends are riding and they're not riding yet. We had a, a girl that was not going to ride a bike at all. Our friend's daughter, who was seven, all the other kids were riding by the time they were three. This girl refused to do it. Went on one camping trip with us where everybody else was riding bikes and she learned how to ride, ride a bike in about an hour because they were connected with everybody else. So it's been really good for the kids. And for my wife and I, it creates an amazing reset because there's so much luxury we have every day. And our RV is pretty darn nice, but it's, but it's still not the same kind of luxury you have being in a house. And you get a real sense for cultivating contentment and what's important is probably the people around you and what you're getting a chance to learn and the difference you're making for others, not uh, your address. And so our big objective, so in, in the, that 83 nights on the road, we spent some time in Wyoming, Montana, uh, down in Southern California, but our big trip is going to be one year on the road in an RV starting May, 2020. And so we've got one other family so far that's going with us and we're uh, working on a couple of others, but literally we have, uh, my friends are changing. The one friend is changing his career. Uh, I think his in-laws are going to go with us and they're selling an incredibly successful business to go on this trip. And just so that they can experience this once in a lifetime thing to go with all of us and their grandkids around the country for a year. And, and it takes having those long-term objectives we talked about aims earlier, your aims for the future, because we've set it up so that it's the year that we teach our kids homeschool in history. Now, we could have been sending the kids to school this whole time, but my wife is learning the disciplines needed to be a good homeschool teacher and learning the kids are learning what it's like to do homeschool so that when we go on the road for a year, that's not a big change for them. But everything we're going to learn history wise is going to be coming to life for them on the road with us for that year. Yeah, there's something to be said when you're looking at some of these places like the Grand Canyon in a book, right? And then experiencing it is literally just, it's a 
just jaw-dropping experience. I remember looking out and I couldn't, you see in three different directions, you can't see anything like man-made. And it's just like, that, you know, this is incredible. I think I, it might have been 360 at the, at the time, but it was just, I, I was just very clear that I was like, wow, this is just, just the, the beauty of this, this country is sometimes like we take it for granted and you have to be in it to really experience it on that scale. Like a picture is not going to like, like when people try to take a picture of a full moon, it's like, it never comes out <laughs> good. And, and so like, you can't even describe to people what it's like to experience some of these wonders uh, of, of the world and of this country. When I, and I think that people are a big deal too. I think there's, they're, especially in the big cities and on the coast, it can feel like maybe the middle of the country doesn't matter. And one of my favorite things about the middle of this country is how many people are out there who really don't make much money income wise. Uh, they, but they have this deep sense of obligation for doing the right thing to each other in their community. Uh, the amount of ranchers and farmers we have in this country where I mean, these men and women will work 12 hour days and embrace and love the literally the genetic dirt under their fingernails. And it's been in their veins for a long time and they work and our family that have been in ranching, like we've, I've done the math and it's not, if they were getting minimum wage, they would be better off than what they're doing. The only difference is they're just working all the time. So they make enough money, but it is it is amazing to see how people can be and the kind of influence they could be and the kind of respect our kids can learn for work and for people that's apart from what they've accomplished or whether or not they, you know, have a million Twitter followers. Yeah, it gives you perspective on life, definitely. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting when we started working on your show was uh, episode 11. It's, uh, and I still, I'll never forget the episode number because I, I actually took part of it and it's actually part of my daily intentions now. And I think we've talked about this before, but it's called creating an intention statement. Oh, yes. And so I'm wondering if uh, you can recall that far back, but, and, and, and why that, why that's, why that was, that was important to talk about and overall what's, what, why it's important to have an intention statement uh, in your personal and business life. Well, I, I think, you know, we talk about aims and one of the biggest problems with having an aim is it's easy to lose it. It's easy to lose focus on it because life, especially in today's technological world, will drive so much distraction toward you. So if we don't have something that recenters us on what it is we want to do for our future, what's important to us, then Almost guaranteed, if we don't have that in place, like a flag we're going to focus off of, then we'll end up somewhere else. Because it's not just we have to set the flag for where we want to go, but then we have to say something every day or do something every day that reminds us that that's the direction we want to go. And research has shown us that if we literally repeat a set of statements about, here's how I think about myself, here's what the difference I make in the world, uh, Here's how I'm going to deal with adversity or whatever those things, maybe even weak spots we may have right now, we can put ourselves in the position where we will do the hard easy, you know, the do the hard things now. So it's easier later when the rest of society would rather us do the easy thing now and be damned with the consequences. So I think it's always easier to drive deeper in the difference we want to make if we stay focused on the future and orient toward it, we'll always be off course. In fact, take a flight from Seattle to New York. That flight is actually off of the ideal flight plan 99% of the time. Always off course and always arriving. 
That's how we should be with our ambition for the future. And that daily intention statement, just rewiring our own brain to think and observe the world a certain way. Well, you mentioned the Grand Canyon. What was it cut by? It wasn't cut by rainfall. It was cut by a river running over the same path for a long, long horizon of time and made one of the great wonders of the world, water. And I think it's the same thing with our minds. If we can reinforce certain ways of thinking with something as easy as a daily intention statement, we can accomplish some pretty great things in human performance. Well, it's it's been a a daily part of my intentions since I found it. Uh, So I want to publicly thank you for that. (laughs) Right on. I'm glad to hear that. I will. And that episode, if I remember right, I had Corey on to walk through that. And so I'll have to let him know. I think that's going to make him smile. So I'd invite the listener to check out episode 11. Um, How? Sound sound Financial Bites, which you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, (laughs) spoken like a true podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) How have you grown as a as a host, as an interviewer? You know, it's, you're you're at a hundred plus, and I imagine where you were when you started um, and where you are now are, are different. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I think my my standards have certainly gone up. I remember it was like maybe as episode seven, I couldn't get my microphone working, whatever I was, and I just said, "Forget it, guys." And I even told the audience, I'm "Like, hey, I'm recording this on a cell phone because I am not going to not get this <laughs> podcast done." Uh, and actually, just the other day, I had some uh, big breakdowns in technology. I remember starting off the podcast saying, guys, you, it's easy to throw your hands up and just give up and say, forget it. And But what's important is I said I was going to do X and getting it done. So I think the consistency for two years of dropping content every single week, game changer. For me, as a person, that's that's a long time to hold one set of commitments. Two, it forces me to be more clear and articulate about what it is that I want to communicate. I also think it's allowed me to become a better listener for others because I'm having to produce content and only talk. And I think one of the biggest difficulties, if if I may, if anybody's listening to this and considering doing a podcast, but they've been uh, reluctant or fearful of pulling the trigger, I think it's pretty easy to think about that the hardest part of podcasting is just doing, I don't know what the proper term is, but I call it speaking into the darkness, which is uh, right now it's kind of easy because it's Harry and I talking, but I've always had the ability to uh, just be okay. Whether I'm on a stage and there's the lights and you can't see the audience, that's you're just speaking into darkness because the lights are on you on stage and you can't hear the audience necessarily or see them, but you have to get a sense for the intimacy and still surf the mood. Except I'm doing that with somebody listening in a car or on a run four months after I recorded it. And so if you felt like maybe you should get into podcasting, but you've been unsure about it, number one, definitely engage Harry and his team. But second, it could be as simple as just getting another person to do it with you. Uh, Harry and I are helping somebody launch a podcast right now where I get to be just the other voice. And she is an amazing and is going to have an amazing podcast. But I'm literally getting to bring value by being the person she talks to to create the intimacy with her audience. Yeah, and you can see when she when you lay out the question for her, you can see her mind thinking because we obviously we do it on Squadcast. So you can see her uh, and she turns her video off and you can see her kind of looking out the window and just like processing the question. So it's like it's a nice, you know, like giving her the lead in. And sometimes people need that and just need that prompt. Um, and then something like a genius comes out of their mouth. 
That's exactly it. And, and I would say if you're up in the air about podcasting, just start recording episodes. If you get a good mic and you just start doing your best to record 10, 15, 20 episodes, then call Harry. And, and then you'll be able to have somebody take a look at the content you've created and give you some coaching. But some of those might be real valid episodes and maybe you've got a launch right there in your iPhone. Can you talk about a, a relationship with a, with a mentor that, that's helped you uh, get to where you, where you are now? It's very strange. I, I've never been one of those people that's like, I have a mentor. What I've done is transacted for help in a lot of different areas. So I've hired a lot of coaches over time. I never, I don't want to say, I, there's lots of things I've learned from lots of different people, but I don't have like the one that's like, oh, this person in my early stage. Now, as a more refined adult, I would say that gentleman I mentioned earlier, Kelly Kidwell, who I'm actually talking to right after this, which is, uh, he's a guy who's the CEO of a company, uh, enormous success. And despite the fact he could have afforded almost anything, when I met him, he had a couple of paid off cars. One, they were nice, like BMW and a minivan, but they were both a couple of years old. A house that was paid off, that was a very normal house. Uh, it was very well appointed, but a normal house. He could have easily had a $2 million home. It was a seven, dollars $800,000 house and not in a gated community, just in a nice little neighborhood. And he, we talked a lot about what it meant to a not as a leader, lead people, but not get super upset when they do things wrong or what it means to make sure that people will follow you and jump in front of a bullet for you if they're on their, on your staff and what it takes to really articulate thinking about the future so that other people would want to follow you into that future. And, and that guy's name is Kelly Kidwell. And I, I believe without a doubt that I am a better father, husband, uh, businessman, advisor, and I would have ever been without his influence. And we had a chance to work together for, uh, I was worked for him for about five years, uh, about six, seven years ago. And we still have a relationship today. And it's, it's really been a blessing to me. We'll be sure to share this snippet of audio with him when the episode goes live. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think you should, we should make him listen to the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a couple of questions as we wrap up. Um, what's something you've changed your mind about recently? Uh, this will be uh, maybe a politically touchy one, but one that I've changed my mind about is uh, real realization that I can't trust a new source. And, uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm, by the way, like every four years, every presidential election is like the Super Bowl for me. I love it. I'm, I'm a little bit into sports, but I mean, politics, elections. This morning, I listened to the, uh, de the gubernatorial debate ver in Cuomo versus, uh, Cynthia Nixon. I just listened to that this morning recreationally while answering emails. That's how much I, like it. And I'm not even voting in that race, but they're a very curious couple of people competing with each other. I want to see what they have to say. And that what's happened for me is the realization that if I hear something controversial, like uh, one of my favorites was a quote given by Ben Carson, which a bunch of media outlets, even conservative ones are like, he said something anti-Islam. And I remember going down the road, hearing it on the radio and going, and this is over two years ago. And I remember kind of being a, a long stoplight, kind of stuck in traffic. I pulled up my phone and Googled it and quickly found the actual audio clip. And then as the traffic started going again, I let it play and I listened to what he actually said. And it was just his opinion. It wasn't hateful. It wasn't mean. 
and realizing that whether regardless of who I'm hearing about, whether they're on the right or on the left, it's that each of those media sources has some of their own thinking. And if in their reporting, they're not really also mentioning their own bias, then it's up to us as the listener to figure it out. And so one of my favorite people to listen to now is a podcaster, a guy named Ben Shapiro. And it's because he even talks about, I am biased toward this. He's very clear about his beliefs and his thinking. And then he also reports the news straight. Like he's a person that when uh, he has whole sections of a show called Good Trump, Bad Trump, where he he says like, these are the things he did I like, and these are the things he did I don't like. But it's it's that kind of realization that it's not, uh, I used to think there was one source of news that was trustworthy and another source that wasn't. When I'm realizing him, I just, I, it is good to take that in. But then when someone interests me or before it has me launch off and thinking somebody is some horrible person, I should probably, we have this amazing ability to just Google and see what actually happened in different situations and watch the, everything is on tape now, everything's recorded and we can actually watch it and go, wait, is that, is that really what happened? And we could actually, if we care enough, we could take an extra minute and, and really take a look to verify for ourselves and form our own thinking about those situations and how we want to move in the future now that we have that information. Yeah, I think that's so important. You know, regardless of where you stand, left, right, center, I think uh, it's important that we form our own decisions and we do our own homework and we do our own research so that when we do speak on a topic, we're speaking intelligently and from a place of having you know, done our research. And, and if you still have your point, then not, it's, we need to get to a point where we can have the ability to agree to disagree on some stuff in, in a way that's civil. And, and I think that's definitely a, a lost art form. And hopefully we'll, we'll be able to find more of that. I, th- I think so. I think, I think a lot of people are now getting tired of the, uh, what I would say is just people holding their viewpoint as it's, it is the way. And there's a great book called What It Means to Be a Libertarian by Charles Murray, but he means it as small L, like not the political party. And one thing he said in that book that really shocked me uh, in, into a different way of thinking about politics or political conversations is to always figure out, wait, what's the end outcome? If you and I degr- disagree on healthcare, don't we both want the most people to access healthcare with decent care possible. Like, is that, if that's what we both want uh, yet, and we both agree, that's the premise. Now let's have a conversation about the best way to get there. And that keeps it from breaking down into uh, greedy government or greedy insurance companies. It's instead it's, we, we no longer have to impugn anybody's intent. We can talk about the philosophy or the strategy. Uh, next question is what's something, what's the most misunderstood thing about you? Uh, some people would say that I have an ego and, uh, what I would say is I do a very healthy one, but it's, I don't think arrogance because I don't, I don't have an ego about the things that I suck at, Mm -hmm. but the things that I say I'm good at, you better be darn right. I'll measure myself up against somebody else in that area. Uh, and I think that too often we just collapse those things with uh, arrogance. I mean, kind of a funny thing is like uh, I heard Candace Owens uh, about a year ago. She's uh, YouTube and pretty big on Twitter, but she 
she said some of the effect of why people love Kanye. They love Kanye because he's got a confidence about himself and his the way he is that it, most people wish they could have. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and I personally feel that uh, everybody should have someone in their life that loves them like Kanye loves him some Kanye. <laughs> so everybody should have a healthy ego about the things that they're good at, but but try to really be careful about stepping over into arrogance, overconfidence in the areas where we don't have accomplishments. Yeah, and I think having a good uh, set of friends and family around you keep you in check is is helpful for that. You betcha, especially whether or not you give them, you know, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Like uh, there, there are people who have some serious problems and one of their biggest problems is nobody's around them to tell them about their problems. Well, I'm grateful to have you around as a friend, as a sounding board. I'm, I'm grateful yeah. for, for our friendship and I'm glad uh, we're able to make this happen. Uh, it, it's everything happening at the right time because this would have been a different conversation a year ago or when you had first started. And I think uh, having it now with what you've, uh, the success you've had with your show um, just made for a much richer conversation. And I'm glad we got to talk about some things that you and I haven't even talked about <laughs> over yeah. the past few years. Thing, things I'll regret later having talked about <laughs> on, a, on a podcast. So uh, again, I appreciate you taking the time and sharing your story with, with my audience. Right on. You're welcome. I'm so glad to be here and I hope it was a contribution. So where's the best place for folks to track you down? Online. Yep. You can find us, uh, Sound Financial Group. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Paul Adams. Uh, um, it seems like on LinkedIn, I'm connected to everybody now, so I may already be connected to every one of your <laughs> listeners. Uh, but if, uh, if you want to go to soundfinancialbytes.com, that's where you're going to find our podcast. We find it's a great way for people to get to know us better. And uh, if you engage in some of those podcasts and you say to yourself, I, I think I might need help like they offer, uh, you can email info at SFG is in Sound Financial Group, WA like Washington, sfgwa.com. And uh, our team, somebody on our team will get in contact with you and make sure that we can help you any way we can. And uh, may I say one last thing about podcasting before we get off that I think is overlooked is that I think one of the best things about having done the podcasting is changing my identity before opportunities arise. So the opportunity to speak in an event, an opportunity to uh, to have a conversation with somebody who's highly qualified to be a client of ours, it gives them a chance to get a bit of intimacy in the relationship with me and with our firm and with the president of our firm that otherwise might not have been attainable for years. And it is really a treat to hear somebody who's a new client saying, I have now listened to we have a client right now, uh, second generation wealth, several million dollars to their own balance sheet in introducing us to the generation ahead of them. And he's listened to every one of the podcasts over the last couple of months. I didn't direct him to, I said, I listen to this one. He just kept going. He's listening. So I'll start saying something. He's like, oh, you mean like this? Yeah, that was on episode 60. And so it is, it is really a treat to watch that. And frankly, I think the more people that are listening to the podcast, the more humbling it is to me to pay. It doesn't build arrogance. It's actually building greater humility and greater importance that I show up really well and I bring the best possible content to people. Perfect way to wrap it up on a podcast about podcasting. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you for that cherry on top of the Sunday. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. Hope you have a fantastic day. Yeah, you too. So thanks again to Paul for sharing his story on the show. 
always appreciated when my guests take their time to spend that hour with me. As always, full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 184. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil, cedarsoil.com. Don't forget to check out clarionconference.com. Use promo code Harry sent me to get $50 off your ticket March 6th, Orlando, Florida, the day before PodFest. Tune in next week for our conversation with Stephen Hart, host of Trailblazers.fm. If you made it this far, no doubt you're anxiously awaiting the retention hashtag. And for this week's episode, it's going to be Financial Paul, one word, Financial Paul. And you can tag us at podcast underscore junkies and uh, Paul and team at Sound Financial One. That's all one word, Sound Financial and the number one as his Twitter handle. Thanks again for all you do to support the show. It is truly appreciated. I honor and respect the time you take to listen every episode. 